to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. I just said, yeah, just said to her, I was like, oh, hide. So I'm like, I've got some really sad news. Um, Daddy died last night. Mum, you know, I tried to do everything that I could to save him, but he stopped breathing. And he's died and we're never going to see him again. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Jo Betts is a passionate mother, wife and creative. She lived a blessed life, married a beautiful man that supported and believed in her, birthed a gorgeous, healthy little girl, and she was living the life she always imagined. Until one night that changed forever. Jo was blindsided by a horrific moment that changed everything for her. This is a story of love, grief, and what actually happens when you're faced with real trauma and there's no one else to help. Joe, I want to talk to you about your beautiful husband and how you fell in love. I actually met Craig um, on a nightclub dance floor of all places. So I was, um, <laughs> I think, and it was in one of the most revolting nightclubs in Geelong called Home House. And basically he thought that I was smiling at him from across the room but I think he sort of then would say to me, I then realised that you'll smile at anyone after a few glasses of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> so he, yeah, he came across and um, approached me and we got chatting and we shared a kiss and, you know, exchanged numbers. But I remember waking up the next day because Craig was so unlike me, you know, so blokey and a bit rough around the edges and, I just remember thinking, oh, God, I hope I never hear from him. And sure enough, he messaged me the next day and he was really keen to kind of catch up and I'd sort of kept putting him off and I was like, oh, I'm not really interested. And at this point, he's living in Melbourne. I'm in Geelong about an hour away. And so eventually I relented and went out to have dinner with him. And then basically from that night, we were really inseparable. Um, but I guess the bad side of that was when we we met he was actually due to go on um around the world trip so he booked one of those tickets with one of his oh. best mates so he was leaving in like three months time so we had got together had this amazing three months of just yeah spending heaps of time together in melbourne and just enjoying each other's company and then he had to go overseas and so when he left I was trying to do that really cool calm and collected thing as in you know what we'll just see what happens I don't want you to feel tied down but was secretly devastated like I cried the whole way home from the airport I cried for a good few days and you know we we met in I think it was 2004 
before. So this is way before like social media and things like that too. So literally he flew to Fiji and I was just kind of waiting to hear from him if I did hear from him. (laughs) And sure enough, he rang me, I think two days later and he just said to me, he was like, I don't want to break up. I only want to be with you. Um, so let's just stay together. And I was like, oh, absolutely. You know, you go on and travel and we, we, we'll see what happens. And so I think his poor mate who did this trip with him said that he, Craig spent most of the time on the phone to me. <laughs> and oh. um, yeah, it was really sweet. But in, in the end, he said, well, why don't you come and meet me in London? So six months later, I met up with him in London. But I mean, I now think about it and think I barely knew the guy. Like I'd, I'd been dating <laughs> him for three months <laughs> and I moved across to London to be with him and we lived there for, yeah, a few years. So Did you? Kind of, yeah. So, yeah, we went over there and worked and travelled and like it was seriously one of the best times of our life and then, yeah, came back home and, um, yeah, that was kind of it. I don't know. We just connected immediately. Craig was kind of larger than life. And yeah, I just, you know, I just always had such a good time with him, but he was also very nurturing of me. And um, so, yeah, we just, yeah, we had a beautiful time. And how old were you when you met? So I was 23 um, and yeah, turned 24 when I shifted to London. So yeah, we'd almost, you know, been together, I think about 12 years or so. Wow. And so yeah. you get married and you have a beautiful little girl. Well, we do. And what is life like? Is it everything you hoped it would be when you got married? Look, I think definitely after we were married, we were in this real bubble of bliss. I think Craig and I had this really great and connected relationship. And then we had Heidi and I think we were certainly still in love, don't get me wrong, but I think having a child really changes the dynamic of a relationship. And I think we both found that difficult for the two of us because I think we were just so into each other that we couldn't believe that this child had come in and that we we loved her (laughs) just as much, if not, not more, and that she'd kind of taken this precedent. And I think, you know, like all things, I, I think we, our life, together got busy and all of a sudden you're juggling work and like your child plus your relationship and you know as I said there was a deep deep love between us but it certainly you know had its challenges like every kind of relationship does. Can you talk me through what happens on the 7th of September 2017? Yeah so I guess kind of the story starts on the 6th because, um, yeah, look, I guess leading up into events like this, you, you tend to focus on what happened before it happened. And I can only say I probably, you know, it was a Wednesday. I'd gone into work. Um, I was working in a co-working space at this time and just had the most ordinary sort of mundane day. I, um, yeah, I came home and, um, yeah, had some dinner with Craig that evening and, you know, soon enough you're in that routine of it was time for Heidi to go to bed. And it was really funny because um, Heidi had been sneaking into our bed at nighttime like most children do. <laughs> and so we yeah. had said to, we'd said to her we'd pay her $1 a night if she um, would sleep in her own bed. And I think we'd got to Wednesday and she still hadn't made any mon- money. But um, funnily <laughs> enough, on that night she actually said to me, um, 
can I just sleep one last night with daddy? And I didn't argue it with her. Like I think the Monday and Tuesday night I kind of had been, but I didn't argue it with her. And I said, oh, do you know what? Yeah, you can do that. So, you know, Craig and I put her into bed and yeah, we sat down and watched TV. And then it's funny because I kind of recall like I would go to bed slightly later than he would. But this particular night I had been recovering from the flu over the last few weeks. And I'd said to him, I'm so exhausted. I'm going to go to bed, um, but I think I'm going to sleep in Heidi's room so I can get a really good night's rest. And he was like, yeah, of course, yep, yeah, no problems. And I yelled out like, yeah, I love you, and off I went to bed. And I, I fell asleep immediately, and I'm normally quite a light sleeper, but I was, yeah, completely out to it. And um, at around, you know, 2.30 in the morning, um, I, I just woke to this crashing noise and almost like my whole body jolted up because it was so loud that I just was woken up into this space of going oh my god what's happened and Craig was in the doorway of Heidi's room and kind of leaning up against it and just saying to me I can't breathe I can't breathe and I just immediately you know went into shock got myself up out of bed and you know straight away kept thinking well Craig has asthma maybe he's having an asthma attack I'm, I'm not sure and I immediately followed him down to our bedroom which had an ensuite um and when I've kind of you know gone into the bathroom with him I've noticed that he's got the shower running um yeah I guess he's, he's had taken his clothes off and he's just standing in this bathroom saying to me hurry up hurry up um I can't breathe so I immediately got on the phone to triple o and was calling through to the ambulance and I'm just looking at Craig's face going redder and redder and and him panicking as well and and I think at some point I thought well the ambulance is going to have to come and help me so I'd better go and open our front door because it was locked and I thought just might give them easier access um in case I sort of you know have, have to work on him because I think your body and brain's kind of gone into shock at this point too so I've opened up our front door and as I've come through the um bedroom I've kind of glanced at our bed and thought I can't see Heidi but I was in such a panic you know and you know my husband's having this attack in the bathroom that I kind of immediately yeah went into him and sort of shoved that out of my mind for the time being um and so I'm you know frantically talking to the operator and Craig had kind of positioned himself um, over our toilet and by this stage he's not speaking and I just remember the operator saying to me um, like what have you noticed have you noticed anything different has his face changed in color and I kind of looked up at him and he'd gone from being this bright red to just like blue almost and his eyes had started to roll back in his head so the operator has said to me that you're like that I'm going to have to get him down onto the ground because he by this stage collapsed over our toilet and was seated and I just remember thinking oh, like how am I going to do this like I'm you know pretty short in stature I only weigh you know sort of 55 kind of kilograms my husband's almost 100 kilograms I'm not like how am I going to actually do this but I didn't really have any choice so I've kind of you know basically wrestled him off the toilet but so worried about 
hurting him at the same time and um yeah got him down onto the ground and she sort of then started to say to me we're going to have you're going to have to start doing compressions on his chest and yeah I you know all of a sudden you're going I think I you know did a first aid course probably 15 years ago and I just I don't even know mm. what I'm doing here um but she kind of said to me right we're going to start with these 30 compressions and you know I'm starting to sort of push on his chest and then she said to me all right you're going to have to do two breaths and when I've looked towards Craig's head I've realized like in pulling him onto the ground we our vanity actually had a gap underneath and I've somehow lodged his head under the vanity so straight away I'm, I'm back up trying to pull him out and you just I don't know I think in this time you're just going oh god I'm like I'm getting this all so wrong and I'm and I'm so panicked and I just feel so out of my depth already and I'm I'm just in a situation that I don't really want to be in so you know once I kind of got in position right she is talking me through and trying to coach me through how to mm. you know do this CPR so you know it's 30 compressions but I just remember feeling really frustrated because she kept like counting by fours and I'm thinking I don't even know like have I done eight have I done 16 have I done 30 and I you know when am I supposed to be doing the breaths and and I just kept getting really distracted through it because at the same time I'm thinking I don't know where Heidi is and I was just really worried that you know a few thoughts are going through my heart my mind I'm thinking is she has she wandered out onto the street is she sat somewhere in our house like cowering alone because I, I just feel like I was screaming down that phone at that operator I was so out of control and out of my depth and you know I'd be pushing on his chest and yelling at her saying I can't find my daughter and um also I guess worrying that what if she walks in like what decision do you make if your child walks in on a situation like that is in a you know do you try and protect her from seeing it or do you just you just push on so there's all these thoughts kind of rattling mm. around my head as I'm yeah trying to do the compressions and I'm screaming at her saying like when is the help coming when is the help coming and she couldn't give me an answer she just kind of kept saying like lights and sirens oh. they're on their way like lights and sirens are on their way and you're just thinking but but when like and I, and I was really aware that we you know were living about 20 minutes out of Geelong so I was like god this is going to take a while um and so yeah I you know I'm working away on him it feels like everything that could go wrong is going wrong from you know, getting him down on the ground and um as I'm starting pushing him Craig suddenly like vomits and you're just going oh god I'm saying to her he's vomiting and I think there's part of me going is this a sign of life or, or what, yeah what's kind of happening here and she's saying to me well you're going to have to turn him onto his side and you know try and clear his mouth as best you can and like even that in itself was just so distressing because you know of course that's what you're going to do and as I'm trying to shift him and his tongue's like right up against his mouth and you know moving the vomit and the worst part is you're actually feeling really repulsed because you're thinking I'm gonna to have to put you know my mouth over that and you know mm. I've got vomit everywhere and um 
I just, oh, I just remember like I just felt so out of control and, you know, I was able to clear it as best I could and got him back on his back and then um, he vomited again. So we're going through the same process again, but she kind of just, you know, and I think that's where you start to go, oh, what hope is in this? Because she's saying to me, don't, don't worry about turning him on his side now. Now it's just, just keep the compressions going as, as much as you can. And um, <sighs> so I think I was probably there for about, I don't know, maybe 20 or so minutes working on Craig and wow. it's like physically exerting and um, so, so much just kind of going on and you feel out of control and like you don't know what to do. And I just, like, I just wanted help. And so eventually, like, I never heard any sirens. There were no lights or that I could kind of see, but next minute, this man walks into my bathroom and I got this real shock because, you know, I thought I'd get some kind of warning and I just, yeah. you know, I just remember I looked at him and I, I felt so relieved in an instant, but at the same time I was like sizing him up and kind of going, oh God, because I think he was probably like late fifties. He was small stature and I was thinking, why have they sent you? Like, and why is there only one of you? I need four, five, six, like I need Superman yeah. here right now. Like not you, yeah. like this, they've sent the wrong person. I just had this like real fear that I'm thinking, it's just, this is just some guy that's been sitting in their house and they thought, you know what, we can't get anyone else. Let's just send him along. And anyway, he kind of got chatting to me and was, was kind of saying to me like, right, you're, you're going to have to help me. And I remember thinking, I was like, hang on, I, I thought I could clock off now. Like I, I'm done. I just want to walk away from this situation because this has been horrendous. And he just said to me, you're going to have to help me move Craig into your bedroom. Um, so basically then, you know, he's picking Craig up by his arms. I've got his legs. We're like dragging him through <sighs> our walk-in wardrobe onto our bathroom floor. And, um, yeah, and I just, I think the best part of that was in, putting him on the floor I've looked up to our bed and I've um seen that yeah Heidi was lying in our bed the whole time I think just when Craig had pushed across the covers that had, had covered her so I immediately said to this man I was like I've got to I've got to pick up my girl and take her down to her, her bedroom because yeah we just I just need to move her. and he was like yeah absolutely do what you have to do and as quickly as I kind of picked her up um you know, the three paramedics arrived. So I quickly pulled her down to, yeah, took her down to her bedroom and just was like trying to be so gentle with her to kind of make sure that she didn't, didn't wake up and yeah, got her into, got her into her bed and just lay with her. And she was just kind of whimpering a little bit, but, um, yeah, I was able to, yeah, calm her really quickly, which thank goodness that she didn't wake up and yeah, basically just made sure that, you know, in that couple of minutes, I was like, Oh, I think she's, she's back to sleep. And, um, and then at that point, you're a bit confused about what you're supposed to do. So I can see that the paramedics are setting up equipment that all sorts of things are going on in our bedroom. And, you know, in the movies, I just imagined I was supposed to be down there I don't know maybe wailing and screaming carrying on and so I've kind of wandered down there and I, but I was scared like I I didn't want to see what was going on and so I kind of 
quickly ducked my head in and straight away the um, man Peter sort of, you know, that was initially the first on the scene said to me, he's like, oh, no, 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 you need to just go and sit in your kitchen. He's like, you need to keep away. Um, and so I just, yeah, went back down our hallway and I just sat at our kitchen table. And I think at that point you're just kind of going, oh, God, um, this is really, really bad. This is really, really bad. And I don't know, like a million sort of thoughts going on and you're kind of thinking like, is he dead or if he's not dead, he's not been breathing for a long, long time and what is that going to mean for us? And and then at the same time, I think this is something you mean, it was kind of going, do you know what, you just, whatever this is, you're just going to have to do it. Like you're just going to have to face up to it. Um, and then I just, yeah, I was just kind of sitting there in this stunned disbelief and one of the paramedics came down and said to me, um, you need to call someone. And I said, oh, I would, but I, I don't have my phone because I'd thrown it on the bed when I'd found Heidi in our bed. And he said, okay, that's fine. Um, I'll go get your phone, but you, you need to call someone that lives close by and, yeah, things aren't looking good. Um, so yeah, they brought, brought my phone down to me. Thankfully, my parents only lived kind of a five minute drive away. And so naturally I've, I've called my mum and we're, we're talking, it's about three o'clock in the morning. So now, and, um, they didn't answer and, you know, I've tried again and they didn't answer. And I sort of gave it a couple of minutes and yeah, mum, picked up and I just said to her, I was like, oh God, Mum Craig's had an asthma attack <laughs> and he's not breathing, but there's someone here helping me. You have to come over here like straight away, like you, you have to come straight away. And so, yeah, I, I was just sat back down in my kitchen trying to keep away from the scene and they came back down to me again and sort of said, look, did you get onto someone? I said, yeah, I've got my mum coming. And they're like, we just, yeah, want to warn you. Things aren't looking good. And, yeah, I was just kind of sitting there waiting for mum to get there. So about 15 minutes later she arrives and, yeah, just, you know, so shocked and just kind of trying to briefly fill mum in about what's happening and, you know, there's lots of beeping going on and, you know, um, yeah, just trying to make sense of the situation. And finally they come down and they've said to me, we're just, we're just letting you know, we're going to give it five more minutes. Um, you know, we've been working on him for almost an hour. Um, so we'll, we'll give it five, five more minutes and yeah, just sit down and keep calm and yeah, stay here. And I don't know, like, I think I think I knew, like I just, I think I actually knew really early on into it, but yeah, eventually he, the paramedic came down and yeah, he just sort of said to me, it's like, we've done everything we can. We didn't get anything from the moment that we arrived. There was nothing. We've tried everything from paddles to adrenaline and yeah, I'm really sorry to say, but yeah, he hasn't made it through and you know, that Point like it's it was a strange feeling because instead I think you kind of go back to what you see in the movies and I just imagine I should be like screaming or out of control but instead I just had this 
remember I like rested my mum, like my head on my mum's shoulder and I just felt really defeated. Like I just, you know, it'd be almost like you've gone into battle and I didn't win. Um, and so, you know, the paramedic was, you know, so gentle and nurturing. He just said to me, like, right, he was like, I'm going to have to call the police because, um, you know, he was young. It's an unexpected death. He's like, it's nothing to be alarmed about. But yeah, the police will be here shortly. And when they arrive, then we'll, we'll go. So, you know, it's this odd sort of feeling of people sort of coming into the house and, and moving. And so the paramedics leave and, the policewoman came and she was, you know, she was fantastic and just kind of taught me through the fact that, you know, obviously you'd have to go off to the coroner's office because it was an unexpected death. And, um, and then she just kind of sat across from me and she said, look, from what I understand, there's a young child in the house. And I said, yeah, it's my daughter Heidi and she's asleep. And she just said, look, I just, you know, with everything that's going on, I'm just wondering if you want to make a call as in we try and get Craig's body out of here before she wakes up. Like what time are you expecting her to wake up? And so this is about 3.30, I think, in the morning at this stage. And I said, look, I imagine she'll be awake between 6 to 6.30. And she said, well, all right, I'm, um, yeah, I'll make a call to the funeral parlour and we'll have one, someone come in as quickly as possible. Um and so at that point, my, my sister had been called and told the news. So she arrived with her husband and they just had like a four week old baby and they come into the house. And then, you know, at about 4.30, you know, um, two men from the funeral parlor arrive and, um, yeah, they sort of, you know, start, I guess, asking you questions, things like, do you want us to put his body up into your bed? Because he was just lying on the floor still and I was like yeah I, I want him up in our bed you know things like do you want us to take his wedding ring off for you um or do you do you want to keep it with him and you just kind of oh yeah I get you know I guess I'll take the wedding ring like you're thrown into these decisions kind of straight away so they put him up into my bed and they just said to me, like, it's 4.30 now, you've got one hour. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, oh, it's like a weird kind of time because, you know, I think prior to this, if you had ever said to me I was going to have to spend time with a dead body, I would have been like, don't even put me in that room. But I don't know. Actually, there was just no fear around it whatsoever. And once they kind of gave me the okay, I just... Yeah, I just went into our room and <laughs> held his hand and, <laughs> you know, touched his face. And I just kept saying to him, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I remember my mum and my sister saying to me, like, you did everything you could. And, <laughs> and I said, it's not even that. I go, it's not that. I'm just. <laughs> I'm so sorry he's going to miss out on like our little girl and our life together because oh god I just know he would be so furious about that and so I sat with him for a bit and and then I left the room for a little bit I just think it was getting a bit much and and I kind of went 
back in and, you know, they'd said to me, you've got, yeah, 10 more minutes. So I just hopped into bed next to him and just kind of held on to him for a bit and kind of waited for about 10 minutes and just walked out to them and said, yeah, okay, he can go now. Um, and yeah, essentially they just, yeah, took him, took him off and, you know, same thing again where you just, I just, I just kind of thought I should be this wailing kind of widow, but I think I was just so stunned and so shocked that I just was kind of like, right, head back down to my kitchen and take a seat with my family and just think, oh God. <laughs> Where to from here? Um, and so it was like, you know, you just kind of where you go, I, I just cannot believe this has happened. Like that was three hours in the space of three hours. I have been woken up. You know, my husband has died. I've had to say goodbye in such a quick, short amount of time. You just kind of go, my whole life has just been completely decimated in front of me in that short amount of time and I think your brain starts to kind of go like oh god how am I ever going to come back from this because this is big and yeah I just you know I think we sort of sat around in silence for a while and um yeah, I guess it was, you know, we were sort of just waiting for Heidi to wake up. And um, in that time, we'd also made, you know, my family and I a bit of a decision that we thought we're not going to tell Heidi first thing in the morning. We, we're all scattered. We don't know what the right thing is to do here. And perhaps now's not the best time to be telling her this news. So my sister-in-law <clears throat> had been contacted and Heidi was due to go to kinder that day. So she came in and... um was sort of said, I'll be on my way to pick up Heidi. And yeah, next minute, you know, sure enough at 6.30, Heidi wakes up and, you know, we all just sit around kind of, oh, it's breakfast time. And um, you wouldn't believe it. Like one of Craig's workmates who clearly didn't know what had happened has tried to call him. So Craig's phone is ringing. So suddenly, oh. you know, she's saying, what's daddy's phone doing? And I just think we'd said he's left his phone at home like we get yeah, don't worry about it hides um your auntie's coming to collect you you'll be going off to kinder and spending the day with them um and yeah so she basically just went off on her normal day while we sat around and just thought oh god like where yeah where to where to from here um so yeah that's that's basically oh. how that went <laughs> I am so deeply, deeply sorry. (sighs) Yeah. I'm just really taken by that um, experience for you. It's, it is, um, there's not quite words really, is there, to, sum up something like that um no there's not and it's you know I 
I think, you know, my life after this as a widow and grieving and things like that, I go, that's a really difficult journey in itself. But the trauma side of things and what I've experienced is something completely different. And, you know, it it's it's changed me good and bad ways um and yeah it's you know i have such a deeper respect and empathy i think for anyone that has been part of or witnessed kind of any sort of traumatic event because i think i now realize that i'm like oh god the impact of that is so huge on people's lives and there's just so much there's so much happening in such a, like you said, in three hours, just the fear of your daughter and uh, her whereabouts and the, you know, that kind of automatic pilot stuff of like open the door, do the things that need to be done and then the constant challenge, the way you articulated where your mind was through all of that is really astounding even seeing a partner in that way yeah and then having to be with them through all of that and try and save them through that responsibility that weight yeah. it feels too much it does feel too much and i don't know like i think it's i think it's a real battle i still have within me I think there's part of me that wishes I was never part of that situation but there's another side of me that um I'm grateful I was there because I can't like if I wasn't imagine if he died alone or with someone I don't think had the like the love or the care for him that I kind of had and I, and I really feel for people that lose someone I guess perhaps suddenly and then for the rest of their lives, they're trying to piece it all back together as to what happened. So if someone came to my door and said, Craig died of an asthma attack, I think I'd spend the rest of my life trying to work out what had happened. You know, what did he look like? What was he saying? Did he do this? Did he do whatever? Whereas I guess the saving grace for me is that I was there. I was witness to it. Um, I know how it played out, but I guess for those last bits too, that I was with him. And I think you know, almost a bit of a reflection of, I guess, our love for each other and our relationship. And, you know, I talked about the times that I guess, you know, slightly more challenging, but I think that really came more so with children because I think underpinning all that was that we just loved being together and um, and being side by side. And, you know, I guess if I had to be part of that to see that journey through, it's, yeah, it, it kind of is what it is. Um, and so I, I do, I guess, if you can look at that silver lining, kind of go, I'm happier that I was there than I wasn't. But there was, you know, but yeah, there's a lot of overwhelm and, you know, I think initially, like, could have I done better? Was I stuffing up the whole time? Like, should have I done a first aid course more recently? But, you know, I think in time, I, I, I do know that I was just fighting a losing battle that night and that, you know, particularly with I think respiratory attacks like that, that 
you really, unless you are qualified and know what you're doing, you probably didn't stand any chance. Do you mind me asking some questions that I'm sure yeah. you've asked about yeah. it? Of course. Do you, so when the paramedics said he was gone before we got here, mm. do you believe that to be true? Yes, I do. I think he was dead within, I, I literally think that moment where I said to you he turned blue and his eyes rolled back. I think he was dead then. I, I just, and so, so, you know, at initially when I was looking at it as him vomiting being a sign of life, I actually don't see it that way. I think it was almost his body and I don't, I don't know much about these kind of things, but almost like rejecting everything out of him. Like I just, mm. yeah, I, I really believe I just stood no chance and I and I think it happened so quickly and having met um you know a couple of other people who's you know have known someone that has died you know from an asthma attack they've all said the same it was almost instant wow because this is the other thing about like asthma I feel like this is my ignorance towards this um disease is that it's like a childhood thing there's lots of inhalers and puffers throughout primary oh. school and yes. then you kind of don't see anymore any 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 you don't really see anything like or hear anything like this yeah i was the same zoe and i must admit i like have been so ignorant to asthma even though my husband had it because it was a bit like he'd had it since you know his childhood he used his ventilators. I don't have asthma, so I don't really understand what it was for or when you would use them. And setting those entire 12 years we were together, I think there was one time where he'd done that same sort of action again as in got up in the middle of the night, but he was running the shower because I think I, from what I could understand that was that the steam would sometimes help open up his lungs and so he'd be able to breathe slightly easier. But I remember that night he just, you know, did that, got back into bed. Was he using inhalers often were they like oh babe run inside I forgot my inhaler like when you're just popping off for breakfast at the cafe or were they on his body all the time so they were on his body all the time and he had been using one that night so I then discovered that like that was in the bathroom with him I guess one thing I'll never know is you know was he up for three minutes before he came me was it 20 minutes like I just I guess that's part of it that I won't know as to how quickly that was triggered off in him and at what point it had obviously got the better of him that he would feel that he had to come and get me in the manner that he did, which I think probably goes back to perhaps it was happening as quickly for him as then mm. the end result sort of happened. But, you know, I, I'm saying I feel really ignorant about asthma. Was there anything left in the inhaler? Um, yes. Was it that he discarded that and he needed more help? Yeah, so he discarded that and yeah, definitely um needed more more help. But I, I but I think obviously, yeah, what can you do? He didn't feel capable enough to, I guess, be calling the ambulance himself. Mm. Did you learn anything about like what does one do then? Like retrospect is a motherfucker, you know, in these times, but for the people listening that maybe 
have this in their world, what do you yeah. do if the puffer doesn't work, the steam doesn't work, the ambulance is too far away? Like what, what, what do you do? I, I honestly believe, I think it's, it's, it's one straight away a call to triple O as in not even messing around with it at all and I guess being guided by them because I think you know if everything you've got to hand is not working then that's the next step and they'll kind of guide you through as to to how to keep them going but I must admit I'm you know more so onto it now when I've got friends that have got asthma or husbands that have got asthma where I'm like you need to be going to your GP and you need to have an asthma plan and preventers. And, you know, I said, I've, I don't have a huge knowledge around preventers and um, Ventolin and things like that too. But I just kind of go like, I wonder whether there's a bit of that bloke mentality sometimes as in, you know, I've got my puffer or whatever it is, I should be fine. But, you know, um, it's definitely something, you know, and particularly in this area too, because I'm, you know, from outside of Melbourne, that, that thunderstorm asthma is really, prominent and so for anyone with any kind of susceptibility they need to have spoken to their GP I guess to have some kind of plan in place as to what they should be doing. What what happens with Heidi? I mean four-year-olds are pretty switched on. Yeah. What's the plan? Yeah so I guess that day after Craig or the day you know Craig's died you know none of us have had any sleep and we're sitting around and kind of going, what's next? And we, you know, usher Heidi off to kinder and, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on in that time of speaking to funeral parlours and, you know, trying to get someone to coordinate that. And I just remember thinking, I was like, oh, God, Heidi's going to be home from kinder soon and I'm going to have to tell I'm going to have to tell her what has happened. And I was really lucky in that um you know, a friend that was a celebrant was actually the celebrant at Craig and my wedding. So we came a bit full circle on that one, had agreed to do the funeral. And this was all kind of happening quite quickly. And she actually came to, to see me that afternoon and said, I just wanted to drop off some information about how you break the news to Heidi. She's like, you don't have to use it, but I just thought it might help. And she kind of gave me this A4 document. Yeah, just around some wording you can say. And I just remember feeling very, um, really anxious about it. And I'd you know, spoken to my sister and said to her, I think you're going to have to be with me when I do this. And, you know, so Heidi came home from kinder and, you know, she's probably wondering why there's still people in the house, which is, you know, just my kind of immediate family. And I took her into the playroom and my little sister just kind of sat down with her and I just said, yeah, just said to her, I was like, oh, hide. So I'm like, I've got some really sad news. Um, Daddy died last night. <laughs> Mum, you know, I tried to do everything that I could to save him, but he stopped breathing. And he's died and we're never going to see him again, which sounds so brutal. Um, but they're switched on, these kids, and, you know, I just felt like I couldn't lie to her and 
I just remember she, she just burst into tears and just kind of like just sort of held her and I said to her, I was like, it's, it's going to be okay. Like I'll look after you and I'll look after us and, you know, then, you know, she was four at that time so she had a bit of a cry and then you know we kind of quickly distracted her with you know a toy to play with or something and you know I think sometimes people have said to me did she get what was going on and you know as soon as I said those words I knew that she got it um I knew she knew something bad had happened I knew she knew that he was dead I think you know upon reflection, you know, you know, as a year goes on, she asks different questions. You kind of go, her, her understanding of it has changed and evolved over time. But God, like if you, you know, if I was thinking the death was bad and dealing with that and like, you know, you're telling your daughter later in the afternoon that news and same thing again, I'm just thinking, oh God, like I just, cannot win at anything at the moment and I think I found that quite challenging in my relationship with Heidi perhaps until more recently because I think I feel this huge weight that like I broke her heart that day that she was so young and and I think it's just how does that happen to a mum that she has to tell her child that news and, and break that to her and just know that this is going to impact our lives forever? <laughs> yeah, it just sometimes it just seems really, yeah, unfair. Yeah. The incident happened in the ensuite. She was in the bedroom. Yeah. And you think that you were loud, but she actually was asleep, right, through the whole yeah. thing. She missed it. That's a miracle. It is a miracle because, you know, that child, once it takes a bit to get her off to sleep, but once she's asleep, she's out to it. And I count my blessings every day that she slept through the entire thing and I have no idea <sighs> how. I mean, Maybe like sometimes I kind of think, you know, there obviously was what was happening and perhaps what my head thinks happened. So to me, the whole situation when I was in there seemed loud, um, screaming, yelling. Um, maybe it was a little bit more subdued than that, but I just, I just don't even know. And even that whole transferring her from one bed to another, like it, mm. it happened. So seamlessly, but you know, I just was like, oh, there were some little miracles in there that I bloody well needed <laughs> um, because oh, I just I couldn't have I could not have had her witness that or or have been doing that with her by my side, um, like at all, at all. I mean, there's so many steps between this moment and my next question, but. How do you start to process your trauma and then how do you support Heidi through hers? 
I think um, my trauma has been really interesting because I think my, my trauma is it feels very physical. I, I don't mentally think about what happened to me a lot, but my body tells me otherwise. And I think my body is still trying to process that trauma. So I get a lot of like jaw pain, ear pressure, back pain, you know, sometimes, especially that first year, I would wake up every morning, even if I had slept, feeling like my body had not slept at all. Like it would just kind of, um, I could feel like my body was so tense in the mornings. Um, and that's sort of slowly getting better with time, I guess, but it's still very much there. And as for hides, yeah, it's interesting. I think that the trauma for her plays out in little things like, you know, there was a lot of separation anxiety between, you know, her going off to school and wanting to be with me. I had a horrendous time last year, you know, in that last term three and term four, just trying to get her into school and we'd, we'd get her there and off she'd go, but she would spend like all day saying to a teacher, I miss my mummy. And I feel like her trauma is a lot, um, if it plays out or if she's feeling um, emotional or unsure or anxious, I think she really anchors herself to me and, you know, it's hard for her to verbalise what's going on within her. Mm. And so a lot of it plays out in, you know, I just miss mummy, I want to be with mummy, which in some ways makes me feel good because <laughs> she obviously sees me as a real lifeline and, and I just try and support her as much as I can to openly talk about it and, you know, she, she, I'm very lucky with Heidi. She is this happy little joyful character who wants to be happy, loves to have fun. So for her, you know, she, she'll get upset and she might have a little cry or she'll tell me she misses daddy, but as quickly as she kind of is in it, she is out of it. Um, in saying that, I know her grief is going to evolve a lot over mm. time. And I, and I don't even think we are anywhere close to me even having scratched the surface of that with her. Um, so, you know, I just kind of, I'm honest with her. I tell her, you know, if there's anything she wants to know about how Craig died. Um, yeah, I just I speak openly, you know, and tell her, tell me when she's sad or if she misses daddy and, you know, what can we do to, to make her feel better if that's what she wants or you know just sit with yeah. me and have a little little cry and say to her like and I'm I'm pretty open with her I'll be like oh god hides mum's had a really rough day I cried all day and then she just laughs at me but but I think it's important that I say to her that I'm struggling too a little bit sometimes mm. but you know we're here together and um we just protect and nurture each other as much as possible it's um going to be almost three years next yeah. month do you two have something you like to do in honor of his memory not necessarily just on the anniversary but at home yeah we do I mean um there's little things I mean this year's going to be interesting for me because I'm in Victoria so I'll be in isolation for it so I don't um. know whether to laugh to laugh or cry about it um but you know, we've, we've developed little rituals. The first year we went away to Byron Bay with a group of, um, amazing friends and my sister and her husband. And 
you know, I think a lot of it's just come down into honoring Craig's talking about him and sharing mm. stories. And I think as she's gotten that little bit older, we actually got this beautiful wooden box from a friend that, you know, is um, a memory box for Craig. And so, you know, last year and this year, I'll really encourage her to, um, yeah, write Craig a letter or a drawing. Um, yeah, same thing again this year. It's basically Father's Day on the Sunday and it's Craig's anniversary the next day. So we've got a big couple of days together. But, you know, I actually, it's funny because I think when I first realized we might be in isolation for it, I was a bit worried about it. But I actually thought, do you know what? It can just be a day or two, you know, for Father's Day and for that particular, you know, anniversary that we'll lock ourselves away and would I just think we do things to make ourselves feel good. So we know that Craig loved twisties, so we always have twisties on hand. And <laughs> um, Heidi wants, I think she's already said she wants to make a cake this year. And so I just kind of encourage her to, to think about anything that she can associate with her dad, but also that she loves and try and make those little rituals. So always for his birthday, we have a cake and I know on our wedding anniversary, you know, Craig and I really loved eating like prawns and oysters and things like that. So I'll just go and get myself a dozen and some prawns. And I don't know, I sort of, I, it's so bad and tragic what's happened, but Craig was the best guy and he, he lived life to the full. And I just feel like if I spend those days completely wallowing and not even giving myself a chance just to celebrate a little bit of him that I'm doing both him and myself and Heidi a bit of a disservice and don't get me wrong it can be really difficult waking up on those days and and it just sometimes feels overwhelming about have I done the right thing am I supposed to be doing something special am I supposed to be you know skydiving or something like that and I think as time's going on I'm starting to sort of take the pressure off myself a little bit and kind of go well you know, connecting to him, I think, actually, this is quite sweet. I actually found after Craig had died, when we were away from each other um, and he was traveling, we would write like emails to each other, like flat out. And they're so embarrassing, but I found a box and he had printed out all the emails oh. of like our love letters to each other. And look, oh. I haven't actually ever been able to read them but I thought you know what this year I might I might not but this year I thought maybe for his anniversary I might oh that's so know, beautiful it's, <laughs> it's really cute <laughs> I'll be so embarrassed though <laughs> it's really beautiful and I think yeah. that's such a beautiful point that you make about um how you were watching yourself behave and that you kept referencing that it should look a certain way and mm. up until now that it should look a certain way and i think that that is maybe one of the most poignant things i'll take from this conversation is there is no way there is yeah. no right way especially when it comes to grief or chaos in trauma that it's it's generally not how it's portrayed, you know, it's the opposite of that. Um, and I think that would be a real relief to people that perhaps have any guilt around that too, um, uh, that it should have looked a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially when it comes to grief as well, like I think, you know, I've been incredibly lucky as in I have never grieved before until you know, it was my own husband. And so this is a totally new process to me. And I think initially 
I think what, when I reflect on, I think what's happened is I've gone into so much shock after his diet that my body, you know, you either go into flight, fight or freeze. And I went into fight Mm. and for a year I just fought so hard, but, but doing the wrong thing, I I just was fighting against grief and going, no, 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 I'm not going to let this get the better of me. Like I, we are going to have a beautiful life. It's all going to be fine. And I fought so hard and, um, you know, sure, did some amazing things with Heidi. You know, we traveled for eight weeks through Cambodia. Like I walked a hundred kilometers. Wow. I did all, yeah, we bought the house. I did all these things. But do you know what? I think I came to the first year anniversary and I remember I woke up, you know, maybe a couple of days after that. And it's like I'd spent a year. I, I think I thought that someone was going to give me like a gold medal, like at the end of it and go, well done, you survived and grief is done. And, you know, because I think I thought I was playing a bit of a game with grief, almost a bit like, well. Cat, cat and mouse or something? Yeah, cat and mouse. And if, and if I outplay it, I think at the end of the year, they'll say, do you know what? Well done. You're healed. Like you're, you're out. So I remember you like, don't oh, have to deal. Yeah. <laughs> I remember just thinking, oh my God it's still the same shit. Like what, I didn't get the gold medal. Like what has gone on here? And I, and I fell in a real heap and I think what I've now learned and, you know, I, I'm trying to sort of live by is not putting any expectation on my grief and, and just rolling with it. And I'm trying to nurture my grief a little bit more and not being frustrated with myself when I feel angry or lonely or sad, which I used to do. Um, now I just kind of go, you know what, I'm, I'm in a bit of a grief like hole and I'm going to shut myself off for a bit and, um, attend to how I'm feeling. And, you know, if that just means, you know, sitting on my couch with my hot water bottle and having a cup of tea and not answering calls that that that's okay. Like I don't have to do everything. And I think as time has kind of gone on, I'm just sort of grief. Well I, well, I know now, like, grief's not going anywhere. It's going to be with me for mm. my whole entire life. But I'm okay mm. with that now because I think the more I nurture it and I start to understand how I am with my own grief, the better it is for me. And it's like I've, I'm in a bit of this love-hate relationship <laughs> with it, but, I, but I'm finding the more that I tend to it, the better it is for me and, you know, that it's, it's something there to be explored and um, and something to not be ashamed of either. Because you wrote a beautiful book titled Grief and we'll put the link in the show notes so people can um, purchase that or, or look into that. But I really want to, and congratulations, because that is huge. Thank you. I just want to discuss the complexities of grief for a little while. Mm. It plays out in in mysterious ways and yours has been quite physical and it also is very difficult for others to meet you in your grief. Has there been a way that you feel was the best way in your grief to be heard or held or spoken to? What what did you, through writing this book, what was helpful for you? to share yeah I think when it came to sharing I and and I think that's been my whole point is that you know grief impacts our society so much in so many different ways whether that's death or you know infertility or separation in relationship and look you know they're all different in their own ways but 
we're so uncomfortable with it. And, you know, in a time when you feel so isolated in what's happened to you and what you're feeling, um, to have others not want to hear you speak because they feel uncomfortable is absolutely devastating. Um, and so I think for me, I sort of, you know, and it, and it can be hard work at, at times, but I kind of got on the front foot of sharing my grief with people in conversation. So, you know, if I encountered someone that, you know, I guess was kind of trying not to address the elephant in the room, I would address it and I would say, oh, you know, obviously since my husband died, because sometimes I'd be in these conversations and thinking, I know that you know my husband died, you know, six weeks ago or six months ago. Why are you not saying anything about it? So sometimes I would get on the front foot of that, which is difficult. It takes a lot of energy to be that on and sort of navigating conversations all the time. But I guess what I was, I hope out of doing that sometimes is maybe teaching the person I'm talking to a lesson as in, you know what? I'm still a normal person here and I deserve to have conversation with you. And I also deserve to have my husband's death acknowledged. And you're not going to upset me any more than I have been, <laughs> you know, mm. upset in this that there's there's nothing that you can say and if you, if you just tell me I'm sorry for your loss like that's that's enough and I I was really um moved by a girl I remember last year I had not into we live in the same you know city I hadn't seen her since my husband had died sure I'm I'm sure we exchanged text messages at some point but we hadn't physically seen each other and I ran into her in the supermarket and she just hugged me and said to me I'm so sorry. She's like, you know, I know that this happened two years ago, but I, but I haven't had a chance to hug you and just tell you in person how sorry I am. And that was enough. It was, you know, a really beautiful moment for me mm -hmm. because I thought you're acknowledging my loss and my hurt and my pain. And essentially all that loss and hurt and pain is actually just my love for a person that's unfortunately died. And so, you know, I think if people are ever unsure what to do, I think it's just, you know, saying like you did at the start of this conversation, I'm so sorry for your loss. And, and I think that that means so much to people because it, it acknowledges what's happened to them and where they're coming from. And, you know, if that person lost someone six weeks ago or six years ago. I think it's a really beautiful thing that you can do. And, you know, even bringing them up in conversation at later points with people because no one ever wants that their loved one that's died to be forgotten. Yeah. I I think if people have experienced grief or trauma firsthand, it's an easier conversation to have because you know yes. you know what you need. And I feel like for those that haven't had that experience, that's such an important thing for them to hear. Just turning up if that's with food or if that's doing the laundry and just being in the background and not even saying anything, you know, it's like yes. sometimes, and maybe, and maybe you, they, they turn up and you just say, I'm not, I'm not ready for that. But it's the knowing, it's almost like being invited to a party and you can choose yeah. whether or not you want to go, but it's always nice to know that the person is there. And yeah. I think sometimes you can just be there and just say, I'm here. And you don't even have to say anything to me, but I'm here. 
And that's sometimes the most comforting part is just someone also being okay with you not being okay. Absolutely. And it's really funny because I I think I used to, you know, saying to you in that first year of grief, like try and pull myself out of these grief-like feelings and put a positive spin on it in some way. And, you know, um, for those that are closest with me and particularly my sister, I know that we, we've had to kind of learn together that it's okay when I'm not okay. And I, I know last, oh, and actually it was the start of this year, Heidi's first day of school. I was all excited. I thought she was, you know, she was excited to go to school, that she wasn't going to cry before I, I left her. And sure enough, she bawled her eyes out, which then set me off. And I, I got home and I was beside myself. Like, and I, and I don't have that like happen to me that often that I could not stop crying. And I rang my sister and I just said to her, I was like, God, I'm so, I'm so upset. And she was like, I'll come around. I'll come around. What is it that you need? I said, come around. Like, I need you here. I said, but don't tell me it's going to be okay. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear that today. Like, I don't want to hear it. And, and I think that's, you know, exactly what you said. If someone can sit with you and just say, I'm here and, and just be with you and and don't try and put a positive platitude to it or, you know, um, yes say something condescending, sometimes just say nothing at all because I often find yes. when yes. there's silence, someone that will bring something out of you and you start to say things that perhaps you didn't, you know, as sorry as the griever, like you, something might come out of you if you're given that space to actually speak to them openly and honestly and that you feel comfortable, then, you know, you, that person that's grieving can start to process a little bit about why they're feeling so sad or in such despair. And, yeah, I think it's really important that we get more comfortable with that and, and you know, just that offering of help, you know, turning up with a meal or, or, or not even expecting to see the person, just leave the meal. Like. Yes, yes, yes. You know what is such a great idea? And I did this, um, we had a, a someone in the family, a mother passed, and I just sent meals. To yeah. the, I didn't even have to go. They just got delivered and no one had to cook. No, There was no. snacks and desserts. Like do the thing that you put yourself, I think, in the position and just go, what would they need? It's the same thing. Yeah, never say to someone like, um, you know, like let me know if you need a hand because I'm I'm not going to tell you that. Like I'm already. No way. I know. I'm already. No I sometimes feel so much not shame, but I'm like, oh god, like I hate. I mean, I have to ask for help all the time, and it kills me. Like because if I want to go to dinner if I want to go like even now at the moment to go to the supermarket I have to ask for help and it it kills me and so when someone says like yell out if you need a hand I'm not going to yell out at all so you know I've had friends that will be like I'm coming to your house at three o'clock and picking up Heidi I'm taking her for mm-hmm. dinner great and that takes the weight off my mind because I don't have to feel guilty about it because I feel like well they want to help and they've offered and put it out there versus me saying, I'm in a really bad place today. Could you please pick up my child and take her off my hands for a couple hours? Because I'm not going to do it and I don't. (laughs) No, no. And I think that's so beautiful and important to hear. And I want to add one more thing that you just said to what you said before, which is toxic positivity is a real thing. And telling someone like everything happens for a reason 
it'll all be fine in a year, you know, um, let's watch, let's just watch a funny movie or let's just yes. swallow your tears or whatever it is, is just <laughs> so diminishing. And I know it comes from a place of not knowing, but if this conversation can just help bridge the gap of just allowing someone to feel however the fuck they feel and Absolutely. being okay with the, be okay with being uncomfortable for them. That's, I think the big takeaway, right? Like what the griever is dealing with is way more important than your uncomfortability. And I think people have said to me where, you know, and, and I get it. I think probably this is more so in a public situation where I spend a lot of time trying to make people feel better about my shit situation <laughs> because I have to almost totally. like, you know, make, you know, and, and even then that's a toxic positivity for me that I shouldn't feel responsible for. But yeah, definitely. I know like at the start of this year with winning you know, with coronavirus was first kicking off and I, I, that hit me really hard. And a friend reached out to me and said, Oh, um, you know, just checking in to say, how are you going? And I wrote back and actually was honest and said, Oh, like I've lost my mind. Like I'm really not coping, blah, blah. And they, they wrote back some nice things, but then said, but just remember, you've got a lot to be grateful for too. Well, oh my God, <laughs> the smoke that came out of my ears. And I, you know, I blog a little and I'd written this blog post about it's okay to not be okay. And do you know what I did? I screenshot it back to them and I thought oh my god like I've lost it but I think it was was my way of saying I've told you that I'm not okay and that's okay like it's you don't have to come back you to me don't need to make it okay yes yeah it's just and you know what at the moment I don't feel grateful so just let me ride that out because you know at the end of the day we're all responsible for our own feelings and things too but you I think the quicker that you feel feel what's going on the quicker especially if it's in a negative emotion the quicker you'll probably come out the other side of it and I think I was listening to something mm -hmm. the other day it's like you've got to feel it to heal it and I'm like that yep. is so true because I think you know I went through for ages trying to um you know and I googled all the stages of grief and I was like right tick I've done this one tick I did this one and then <laughs> kept thinking I hadn't done anger and I was like yeah but I'm not an angry person and if you had have said to me I was like I'm not angry I'm not angry at all and then I think that I fell in a bit of a hole in year two and I was doing specific um, trauma therapy called EMDR and it almost broke me and I remember I came home from a session and I, I was so angry like I was livid I just you know I my house um frontage sort of looks out on a street and I was looking at all these like perfect families walking past and just thinking <laughs> I hate you so much but I I needed to go through and I wasn't just angry for a day I was angry for weeks and I was angry at perfect families I was angry at my friends and my family for not understanding or you know the having their lives look so amazing and mine felt like it was falling to pieces. I was angry at Craig, which was such a conflicting emotion for me because I'm thinking, well, it's not his fault, but I just, you know, was going through a stage where I'm like, I'm so angry with you for leaving me and, for, you know, almost going like you, you did this to me, like I've been through this situation and I'm so angry about it. And even this year, like I, so I, you know, think, 
what a really important message is, is that these stages of grief are certainly not linear. And so because I had that anger then doesn't mean I'm not going to be angry (laughs) and get it. I know this year I had this real moment of feeling really angry about the fact that I don't feel like I got to say goodbye in the way that I wanted to. And I think, you know, that just, and, and that wasn't to do with that evening in particular. I think I'm just a bit pissed off that we couldn't have like one more, you know, glass of wine together or you know that I couldn't have a moment with him where I actually got to sit down and say to him like I love you so much and this is what you mean to me and um you know so I explored that anger for a bit too but yeah it's you know you've got to feel these emotions to then heal them because otherwise you just end up really mixed up and I think that that is really important for people to hear that are dealing with grief because you're right, it's not linear and it doesn't end. And the bad news, I guess, that comes out of this conversation is it never, ever ends. It (laughs) definitely softens in ways, Mm. but it never leaves you. And, you know, I miscarried at the end of last year and I, my mum died. It's, it's, you know, I'm like, it's fine, toxic positivity. (laughs) Um, But my... (laughs) My um, mum died 14 years ago and I, during that time of real need for a mum, I was so angry (laughs) and I hadn't processed and I had 14 years has, has passed and I definitely had feelings of anger. But then there was this life event that was just like, I I was so mad um, and I really had to deal with all of that as again, you know what I mean? It's like this thing and then you're bored. You're bored by your grief. You're like, really? Are we still still here? And that's exactly what I was saying to my sister. So basically with this stemming, this anger from not saying goodbye, do you know what happened? I essentially was on Instagram and someone shared this beautiful um, video of their mum who passed, who's now passed away from cancer. They'd organized a flash mob for her while she was unwell. And there was 200 oh, amazing brilliant. people dancing. And I was like crying <laughs> because I'm thinking this is so beautiful. And then this wave of anger hit me because I just went, why didn't I get to do a fucking flash mob? I just wanted to do it. And mind you, I cannot dare. My husband would have actually died on the spot if I ever did a flash mob. I don't even like flash mobs. And my sister came home. I'm sobbing and saying to her, and a whole lot where I'm like, I didn't get to, you know, it's so funny because that anger at that then turned into, I feel like I didn't get to say, goodbye so then I'm 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 going through that and then I'm also saying don't you dare like cheer me up but I think I was so upset too because I thought I thought I'd come so far on my grief journey and I feel like I'm back at square one again Mm. and that's a hard one to take but I think what I'm now realizing is sometimes when you fall you know and you hit hard in grief that perhaps you don't you know stay there quite as long as you did maybe the first time it happened or I've got better strategies at knowing how to pull myself kind of out of it as I become a little bit more experienced Mm. with it too. Did you and Craig ever discuss like if anything ever happens 
you know, I don't want you to just live a, you know, a solo life and have 15 cats. Like I want you to find love again. (laughs) Or is it like, no, I want you to be desperately unhappy and mourn for me forever. Was there, did you ever discuss it? Do you know what? We actually didn't. I I like to think that maybe I'm a bit like, were we just dumb or, you know, um, I, I just think that we were so positive that we were going to have a future together and be together always. We just never had those conversations. You know, a lot of people um, sort of said to me, did he have a will? And unfortunately Craig didn't. So I do, that's a piece of advice. I think everyone should have a will. Um, Mm. But I remember saying, I I think, you know, there's one side of that is that that's, you know, a bit of an uneducated decision and was silly of him not to have had one. But at the same token, I there's part of me that goes, well, we're young. We thought we had all this time and that this would never mm. happen to us. So we, we hadn't had those conversations. But in saying that, you know, it's really funny because over the last week or two, and, I, and I've thought this a bit, but it's become definitely more apparent to me, I kind of feel like Craig knew that he was here for a good time and not a long time. I just have this sneaking mm. suspicion that perhaps – he may have known that he wasn't going to be here forever, which is probably a bit spiritual. Um, but so I think for me, I I think this would be Craig's thinking. He'd be like, you can be single, but I'm not going to make it easy on you. And it'll be things like you're going to have to tell people like that you're a widow and that I've died and that I'm still here, <laughs> here in some <laughs> kind of way. Like I think that's more so what he would be like. I'm going to, you know, if you ever wanted to be single, I'm going to have to die to make that happen. (laughs) happen. uh, It's very funny. I mean, it's still very early days, but Mm. do you hope to have a partner again? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Zoe. I think, I think, yes. I, I don't know. It's, I, And I think it's got nothing to do actually even more so with Craig. I think it's more so me as in kind of I think sometimes I probably think that I'm still wrapping my head around so much of what's happened and um, perhaps I need to get more comfortable with myself before I can perhaps fully give myself into another relationship that I thought was going to be a full partnership. Um, And, you know, I've got this little girl to like kind of focus on. I'm I'm sure, you know, my friends and family would you know, be like, no, be partnered up. We want that for you. And I think, you know, so many people do. And I think eventually I would want that for myself because, you know, at some point, and I hate thinking of this, Heidi is not going to want to live with me for, <laughs> forever. <laughs> so it's, you know, it would be a lonely life, I guess, if I, I didn't find someone to, yeah, share time with. And, you know, I've still, I'm sure, got a lot of love to give as well. And, you know, I think it's probably scary to think about because it's a bit daunting. And, you know, there's coming a widow actually does knock your confidence a lot in that mm. department too. So, you know, you feel very vulnerable and um, very fragile because it's a bit like you do have this part of you, you know, and it goes back to that where I guess we are scared of trauma and grief and things too. And so it's like I've almost kind of got this, you know, 
black mark against me um, before I even start. And I just think that will be something that comes in time. You don't, just so you know, you don't have a black mark. You don't. I was speaking to a friend about you today and she doesn't have children but Mm. she is married and she was saying I just don't think that I could survive that Mm. and a part of me pre my son gets that too like I don't know if I could if I didn't have my son um he would be a force to keep me going. Have you felt like Heidi has been some strength within all of this? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, same thing. I think that there's a real push and pull in that because sometimes I go, she's the one that I've just had to keep going for because She's here. She needs to be fed. I've had to get up each morning to, you know, help her and be with her. And, you know, she's also something that I can, you know, a child that I can pour my love and energy into. But then sometimes I've felt really, you know, it feels bad saying that, that, you know, if I didn't have a child, and probably wouldn't have been good, I could could have escaped almost a little bit. I could have run away overseas I mean I can't do that now but um I could have changed my life in different ways to you know I guess not see what was going on but um I think in a time where all I was doing was looking to escape in those early years I couldn't because I had a child (laughs) and I've lost a lot of freedom along the way too and that goes back to having to always ask the help and um almost like feeling like I'm a teenager because everyone knows your whereabouts and what you're up to (laughs) all the time Mm. because when you ask for help people need to know where you got one don't have to but you know with that comes oh what are you up to and things like that too but yeah it's an interesting one because I I I was kind of in both camps on that one because I think Heidi has helped me so so much and uh, I, I did get very frustrated in the early days where people would say to me, um, you know, you'll be okay because you've got Heidi. And I'd sometimes go, but what about, like, forget Heidi. What about me? Don't I deserve a good life just for myself? Like, and, and with her, and I, you know, I don't mean, you know, palming off to someone, but I kept saying, yes, I've got this child and she's beautiful and I think we're really going to help each other, but I deserve a good life too. And, um, yeah, don't forget about me in this. And I was probably pretty selfish that first year <laughs> or so where I was like, right, Heidi, I get your grieving, but my grief comes first and we are like, we're off. So, you know, as I was saying to you, I took her off to Cambodia mm. for eight weeks. We house at my friend's mm. house and I just swanned around the city and drank cocktails and some singles with her. And, you know, she was probably a real bystander to my grief at that point. But you know, I was still trying to sort out what it is that had actually happened to us. And I think a good advice to me that had been given was that in, you know, I'm probably always going to be a step ahead of Heidi in my grief. So whatever I learn and what stage I'm going through, um, I'll then be able to sort of help her in turn. But yeah, it's a tough one because I kind of go like, 
you know what, if your husband died, it is absolutely devastating. It's, it's so huge and the impact is enormous. Um, mm. you know, from finances, emotions, mentally, physically, mm. it's, it's, it's a lot, but you do go on. Um, and I think you've got to try and make it as good as you can. Oh, so our final question, which is, who are you when no one is watching? I think I'm just a girl who has lost so much. And it's just trying to find her way. Yeah. I think that's really it. I can't thank you more for your strength in sharing your story today. It, I, you know, I wish... I could give you a big hug. We are in different <laughs> cities, <laughs> separated by a, a virus. But I really wish that I, I really feel like this deep connection to your story and to your resilience. So um, I just feel very, very honoured to be able to share that. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.